It's time to play like a jet with your host, Scott Mason. Play like a jet. What does that mean? Makai Becton, ladies and gentlemen, human beings that large should not run as fast as Makai Becton did. And if you like people just abusing other humans, the Makai Becton tape is for you. Denzel Mims with another monster score of 70 yards. Quick pass to Crowder trying to get him out of the space. Slopes a tackle, and there he goes. Crowder, it's a foot race, and Crowder is in there. A 69-yard touchdown. Takes a shot. Here's Corey Davis, wide open. Davis. Still going, and he's in for the touchdown. He'll hit immediately when he got the handoff. You know that's the q Oh, my gosh. Listen, thank you. From the playlikeajet.com digital studios, this is Play Like a Jet. My name is Scott Mason. You can follow me on Twitter at playlikeajet1. And I'm very honored to have a special guest to talk about not just the 2021 draft, but what the player evaluation process is like, what it's like to be in a war room, a whole bunch of stuff that you can only pick up from over 20 years of experience in the NFL as a high-level scout, and then rising all the way up to VP of player evaluation for the New York Giants, a guy that I actually wanted the Jets to hire in 2013, and we'll talk about that when the Jets were hiring a new general manager. They went with John Idzik, as we know, didn't quite work out so well. I am talking about a man who is Jerry Reese's right-hand man with the Giants from 2007 all the way up till the end when Jerry Reese was let go about a decade later. That, of course, is Mr. Mark Ross. Mark, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, man. Really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure, Scott. Glad to be here. And like I said, Mark, I got to ask you about this because in 2013, I wanted you to be the guy that they picked as the general manager because I loved what you had done with the Giants. Obviously, we saw the Super Bowls. And also, I liked the idea of stealing you away from the Giants and being <laughs> able to shove it in my Giants friends' faces because they would talk about how the Giants built a winning culture and a winning organization. So being able to poach you from them would have been awesome. What happened there? I know you were on the initial list of interviewees, but it didn't really pan out. What happened? Yeah, so at the time, the Jets were using Corn Ferry, who was were, was a service uh, uh, search firm, to do that. You know, a lot of owners don't really know uh, who's out there at the time, and so they use search firms or they use a an NFL insider type of guy, person to do that. So they were using Corn Ferry, and I was on the initial list of five candidates. I forget who the others were. Uh, John Edstick was not on that list, uh, but so uh, I was on an initial list of five. I went into the city, did the interview with uh, you know, Woody and uh, about five other guys, uh, you know, his right-hand men that were there. And uh, I thought it would, it went really well. I, had, I was real prepared, had a good plan, I thought. But um, it sort of just kept dragging out uh, where after days and days, usually kind of teams will – interview make the decision after a few days you know what's going on but this kept dragging out after a week or so or two and they just kept adding more and more corn Ferry just kept adding more and more candidates to the interview pool and i think they may have got up to 15 or so and then they i had pulled out you know before that just like hey I, you know i owe it to the giants that i can't leave this hanging i got a great job here so i can see where this is going i'm not the guy because this is taking so long so i'm going to kind of remove myself from consideration, but I knew I wasn't going to get the job. Once you, once you start interviewing 15 guys, if you're on that initial five, then they don't want you for whatever reason. 
I know it was a long time ago. We're talking eight years ago now, but you said you had put together a plan. Do you remember any of what you had put together? What would you have done at quarterback? Because obviously it was in flux at the time and they ended up drafting Geno Smith, but nobody knew exactly what was going to happen with Mark Sanchez. Do you remember any of what you had put together as a potential plan for the Jets? Yeah, I I can't remember specifically. I, I went on a bunch of interview GM interviews at the time. Uh, you know, I, I deserved it. I, I felt I deserved it, mm-hmm. but that was also, as we've seen the last couple of years where teams were just hiring a minority, uh, interviewing a minority candidate to, to check the boxes. So I was like the number one check the box minority candidate at the time coming off the two Super Bowls and whatnot. But uh, so I, some of those teams are confusing 2013. I can't quite remember uh, the exact, <laughs> the exact plan that I had going on there. No worries. I just figured I would ask since you brought it up. I wasn't sure exactly if you might have had a recollection of what you thought the Jets should do at quarterback at the time because at that particular time, they had Mark Sanchez, somebody who was picked number five overall and who they had invested a lot in, but now they realized that they were going to have to move forward and go in a different direction. They ended up getting Geno Smith in the second round, and that's the same situation that the Jets find themselves in right now, just having traded Sam Darnold after picking him number three overall three years ago. Now, Mark, I think if the Jets would have hired you, perhaps they could have avoided all of this and built the team properly. (laughs) But since they didn't, and now they're in this mess, they go into the draft here with the number two overall pick. So I want to talk about how you evaluate players, what it's like to be in the war room, how you accidentally discover Jason Pierre-Paul, a lot of different things. But first, I want to pick your brain on the quarterbacks. We know Trevor Lawrence is going number one. There's absolutely no mystery there. This has been known since the day the Jaguars locked up the number one overall Mm -hmm. pick. But after that, you've got four quarterbacks, and it's been hotly debated. Zach Wilson is the one that everybody seems to think the Jets are going to pick. You've got Justin Fields from Ohio State. You've got Trey Lance, who's very raw but very talented. And then Mac Jones, who has risen a lot, but it's weird because even though he played really well at Alabama— his traits don't really stand out to you. It's more just sort of the mental part Mm -hmm. of the game that people like about him. What have you seen from these guys? What would you do if you were the Jets? And what do you like and dislike about these quarterbacks? Well, I I love Zach Wilson. And uh, when I first heard the buzz about him during the year and I threw some tape on, I just thought I was just going to see uh, BYU. I kind of had a a little bit of, okay, let me just watch this tape and and, and, uh, kill this guy. But I mean, it really just jumps out when you watch him play, just how natural he is, how gifted he is, just with his, you know, for for me, a a great quarterback feels everything around him. He conducts everything. Uh, He can make plays when things are are off schedule and from different angles and the movement. And he just does those things so naturally and so easily. And the comparisons are made to Mahomes and his idols, Aaron Rodgers. But you see that. And there's very few people that, sort of have that I'm playing in the backyard sort of quality to them, but actually doing it in games and doing it in a productive way. And Zach Wilson, uh, I, I just love his skill set uh, and his talent to be able to do that. So uh, I'm, a, I'm a believer in Zach Wilson. I think Jets fans will be happy there. Um, uh, you know, the guy Justin Fields, is, is, to me, has done everything you want a franchise quarterback to do in his whole life, you know, a five-star recruit, maybe the number one or two recruit in the nation with Trevor Lawrence, even going back then, mm-hmm. uh, you know, goes to Georgia, you know, they should have kept him instead of from, but okay, let me just go to Ohio state, 
uh, you know, do what he did there just as far as leading them to wins and, 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 and all the production he had there but off the field with getting the Big Ten, you know, really being the, the forefront of getting the Big Ten to play, uh, just his demeanor, his toughness, the Clemson game, maybe the best game anyone's played uh, this year as far as a quarterback. So to me, he just has star quality uh, all about him and he's going to be uh, a success. And I, I think he's got, he's got to be the pick for San Fran at three. I, there's no way you, know, when you talked about Mac Jones and his, his limited traits. And that's just not what wins in the NFL nowadays. And you know, he gets lauded for the, the smarts and the, the accuracy. Well, Justin Fields, they, that offense was pretty daggone productive <laughs> at Ohio state. So if you, if, if that's all you're counting on with Mac Jones is to say, we have the third pick in the draft. Oh, and by the way, we traded four picks to get this third pick and we're going to take a system quarterback to go in the NFC West and compete against Russell Wilson, Kyler Murray and Matthew Stafford. Uh, that's a losing formula in my view. So I think that pick has to be Justin Fields, uh, but very intriguing there. Of course, Trey Lance, I think would be best served to go somewhere where he can sit and develop for a year uh, to, to work. He hasn't played in a year, just played the one game this year. He is raw. Those kind of guys, you just never know. Uh, so it's an intriguing class, but I think the surefire, the guys that I watch and I really love are Zach Wilson and Justin Fields. Mark, when you're evaluating these quarterbacks and deciding who to pick, as somebody who has been in that position where you had to make decisions like that, it is very pressure-filled because the entire fate of the franchise could be resting on this decision. Now, you had Eli Manning, so you didn't have to worry about it as much, but still, even a first-round pick, a garden-variety first-round pick is very, very important because the expectations are so high. And with the Jets picking at number two, you get this wrong if you're Joe Douglas and you probably don't live to see another day in terms of being able to get another quarterback. You're staking your future to this guy. So if you're going through this process, what are you looking for, not just on tape, but when you really break down who these guys are, what do you want to see? What would make you confident about picking one of them at number two overall? Yeah, so yeah, you're right about Joe Douglas, and he's got to get it right. And that's why when people were saying Sam should stay, you know, was that in the consideration? I was like, absolutely not. Joe Douglas right. is not going to say, I'm going to keep this guy, and then Sam – doesn't do, perform well next year, then just, that's on Joe Douglas, you know, before Sam wasn't his guy, but if he keeps him, then it becomes his guy. And mm -hmm. if he fails, then that's on Joe. Uh, that being said, so yes, I did in, in New York, I had Eli Manning. So we kind of were just looking for backups all the time, but I started my career in Philadelphia and in the 1999 draft where we took Donovan McNabb mm -hmm. at number two. And that year was Tim couch one, one Donovan, Achilles Smith was in that draft, Dante Culpepper, and Cade McNown were all first round picks. Uh, and you just, and, and, and that draft, you know, Donovan was by far the most successful. The other guys, Culpepper had a year or two. The other guys, you've know, pretty much failed. And you see that every year with quarterbacks. We go into this process thinking they're all going to make it. But in reality, really just one or two of a group are going to be successful. Uh, so that being said, back with the Donovan, we just did, number one, you have to look at a guy on film and you, when you're watching him, that's the first indication to say, this is the guy. You know, you're not watching a guy and, and wishy-washy on him and then all of a sudden trying to create him or make him into your guy throughout the process. So it has to be that initial when you're watching these players and you're like, this is, this is, this is it right here. And, and uh, I happen to be the area scout going up to Syracuse. I was there in August, September, watching Donovan. And it was, you know, at the time it was – 
the Syracuse offense was unconventional. Mm-hmm. Uh, now a lot of teams are doing the stuff they did, but at the time he was running a lot, a lot of options, things like that. So, but he was just, he had all the qualities. He was a leader. He was productive, you know, a four-time Big East player of the year. Uh, they won uh, the leader off the field. You have to look at the traits on the field, but also the traits off the field. And we just invested a lot of time, kind of a traveling caravan with all those top guys to go to their respective colleges for pro days and bring them into our facilities. And it was number one, we thought Donovan was the most talented, but number two, he was the best fit. He was a, he was an East he was a Chicago guy. So he came from the city, played in the big East. So we thought that he could handle the Philadelphia media, and he really had to handle that now, the Philadelphia media and fans from day one where he got booed on draft night. So that's what these teams are doing now is really investing to say, number one, they have to be talented on the field. We think they can be a franchise quarterback, but number two, who really can uh, you know, represent our organization and our franchise best on the field and off the field. Mark, it's funny you brought up Donovan McNabb getting booed at the draft because I was there that day, and I remember how loud it was. People were booing because there were a ton of Philly fans in attendance since they picked so high, and the fans were booing. You couldn't hear yourself think. I felt so bad for Donovan McNabb, and I said, if he can survive this, then actually going out on the field is going to be a breeze. But I have to say... The decision that people like you and Andy Reid and the others in the front office and the coaching staff made to make that pick when there was so much pressure from the fan base and the media to take Ricky Williams is remarkable. And I think that really plays into what makes a successful coaching staff in front office, right? It's tuning out that noise and zeroing in on your guy. So even if Joe Douglas has people saying you should take Trey Lance or you should take Justin Fields. If he believes in Zach Wilson, then that's the guy he needs to take and not worry about what anybody else is saying, right? 100%. And that's what you have to have. And I learned I've always been a kind of a guy of conviction in my life. But that taught me that was my second full time year scouting, my second draft. And like, what's wrong? You know, it's like people are crazy. This guy is the guy. <laughs> and, but, and that's what you have to believe in yourself, but it's, but I've been, trust me, I've been around a lot more personnel, people, coaches that go with the crowd mm-hmm. uh, the, and, and listen to the chatter and are not strong in their conviction of, about what they see and calling people, calling coaches and trying to get a consensus on what they're seeing, as opposed to guys that can really just sit and break down some tape and say, this is what I see. And this is what I believe. And I'm sticking with this. Um, and it's, and it's, that's more rare than it is to go with the chatter and the mock drafts and the calling your buddies and what agents are telling you um, to, to block that out. So yeah, we were real fortunate to, you know, the whole city wanted Ricky Williams, man, the whole city they we had the radio people there on air every day, just, you know, we're, we're going to riot if they, if they take Donovan, if they don't take Ricky. Uh, but we, we knew he was the guy we knew Donovan McNabb was, was the guy, uh, the right, the right quarterback, the right time for us there in Philly. You guys absolutely made the right pick, but I do want to make it clear. I am in no way disrespecting Ricky Williams. A, I'm a huge Texas Longhorns fan, and B, Ricky was awesome. (laughs) It's just if you have the opportunity to pick an excellent franchise quarterback or an excellent running back, you're going to take that quarterback every single time if you need one. But I do want to talk about the other positions here in this draft, Mark, before we get into more general stuff. We talk about running back, wide receiver, The Jets are going to have to make some investments on the offensive side of the ball because whether it's Wilson, Fields, Lance, Mac Jones, the man on the moon, whoever it is that comes in here to play quarterback, (laughs) 
that guy cannot be put in the same position that Sam Darnold was put in. You need to be in more of a position like what happened with Mark Sanchez when he came in and he had a roster that was built to win. They had good players all over the offensive side of the ball and a strong defense. Now, it's going to take time. It's not going to happen overnight. We both know that. But... You've got to build up that offensive line. You've got to give him a running back that can make plays. You've got to boost the wide receiver core. Now, they did do some nice things in the offseason here, bringing in Corey Davis and Keelan Cole. So now the wide receiving core isn't embarrassing. It's decent, but they could still use somebody who's explosive. Who are some guys that you like here that you could see helping out Zach Wilson or Justin Fields or Trey Lance or whoever it is on day number one with the New York Jets? Yeah, you're right. It's all about the quarterback. It's all about making him succeed and almost a mix of, as you mentioned, Sanchez, the stability that was there. I just didn't think Sanchez was worthy of that six mm-hmm. pick. You know, Pete Carroll kind of got lambasted at the time for saying he wasn't ready, but he actually was right. Mm-hmm. Um, and But then the Sam Darnold, who I think did have the talent, but just got thrown into, you know, he was kind of a uh, unstable. His, his strengths and weaknesses were his his turnovers, <laughs> his carelessness, and he got thrown into a careless situation. So that was bad for him, mm-hmm. despite the talent and playmaking. But yeah, I think for the Jets now, they take they take uh, Wilson at number two. Just do everything possible to make him he him succeed. And they can go a lot of options. You mentioned receivers, but I don't think they have to be pigeonholed there because I think there's a lot of good receivers in the draft. Mm-hmm. I think they could still go offensive line. Uh, there's a, that's a deep group for them. It's a deep group of O line. Uh, I think they can go. Uh, despite a tons of tight ends, they can go tight end as well to help him at some point in the draft. Not really a great group, but uh, I, I think they'll have a pick of guys, uh, you know, in, in any of those positions. And that receiver, you know, someone you've got kind of the, the two guys there now uh, with Mims and uh, and Corey Davis were kind of bigger guys. So, you know, playoff, you know, almost a basketball team you like to see with receivers where guys with different skill sets. So mm-hmm. I think someone like uh, Elijah Moore, uh, Kadarius Tony, Amari uh, Rogers from Clemson, those sort of guys who kind of, what they do get the ball in their hands real quick, smaller, quick guys, really versatile. You can use them in a in multitude of ways, even out of the backfield, a guy like Elijah Moore, where they did that with him in a couple games. And I think th- those sort of guys will play off the strengths of the bigger receivers that they have now. And that'll help the, the quarterback where, okay, I, I don't need a guy to run a 10-yard route to get over. Let me just get the ball in his hands two yards down the field, and this guy will make 10 out of it. So those are the sort of players I think will be really intriguing for the Jets and their offense and what Zach Wilson does well. Uh, just as far as if they go a O-line, you, you know, you'd be looking at a Jalen Mayfield from, from Michigan, just a big, strong, tough guy. You put him with Makai Becton, and you've really got your cornerstones of your O-line kind of Harkening back to the Brickashaw Ferguson and Nick Mangle, those days where you've got just two two Pro Bowl type caliber players, and you're hoping for that with like a, a Jalen Mayfield or a, a Leon Eichenberg from Notre Dame who could be down in there, and Elijah Vera Tucker from USC. So I think they've got they'll have a lot of options uh, where they're picking to to help the team right away. Play like a jet. Play like a jet. Mark, it seems like this wide receiving class is incredibly deep, just like it was last year. So I think you can probably wait till the third or fourth round to get one of those guys. You don't necessarily have to shoot for the moon early. And even with the offensive linemen, 
if one of those guys like Tevin Jenkins or Elijah Vera Tucker drops the 23, that's fine. But otherwise, you've got a pick at 34. You've got two third rounders. You've got a fourth rounder. I think you can get value there, especially on the interior offensive line. Is that how you would approach this? Would you necessarily force any particular positions at 23 or 34? Or would you sort of play the board and see where everything falls? Yeah, I think with the Jets, and, and this is where you're getting mistakes on the draft, uh, throughout the draft, is when you overvalue players because you think you need them. Mm-hmm. Whenever you hear about need versus value, every single team says, oh, I take you after the, we took the best player on the board, but that's just not true. You always talk about what you need when you go through draft meetings. Every single team does it with every single player. That's why you have draft meetings. So with that, you just don't want to overvalue players because you think you need them more so than at another position. Mm-hmm. So what I'm saying is if, if the best safety is really only worth a third round pick, but you need a safety, you don't want to put him in the first round because you need that. You want to take the five other receivers that you have graded over that safety if you have that value. So when I'm looking at the Jets, they, they've got a lot of needs. <laughs> so right. what they can really do is just sit there and that put the, the grade their players correctly grade them for the best value at each position, grade them for the best value when you stack up the players as a whole, and then just sit there as the draft progresses and say, let's just take, let's really, we can take the best player because they are going to fill a need and we have this need. Uh, so I think they, they shouldn't jump guys up. Uh, if there's a, a, a corner that falls to them, that's one of the top 10 guys and they're, they're there, you know, top 15 guy, take the corner. Mm-hmm. Uh, if there's an O-line, take the O-line. So, they're really in a good situation. They've been set up nicely from the trades they've made, namely the Jamal Adams trade, that, that they can, they do have a lot of assets to address a lot of needs. Are there any particular players that you personally would be targeting with some of these picks at number 23, at number 34, even at the top of the third round or the fourth round, if you were the Jets? We know the positions, but are there any specific players that you really like here that you would be looking at for those specific spots? Yeah, definitely. And you, you do that as well when you value your players, but there's always their, your favorites that you have. And I, I used to do that with my scouts, like who's your favorite guy? Doesn't matter where they're going to get taken, what kind of career, what, what guy's your favorite? And, and teams talk about that. So, you know, I mentioned some guys before, you know, Elijah Moore from, from Ole Miss and, uh, you know, Kadarius Tony from Florida. Rashad Bateman is more similar, the Minnesota receiver, more similar to the type of guys they have. But even going down into the, the other rounds, uh, you know, a guy like Rondell Moore from Purdue, he's been hurt, but but similar. Uh, or, or Dwayne Eskridge from, from Western Michigan. Keep your eye on him mm-hmm. down there later on in the draft. Amari Rogers from Clemson, uh, those sort of guys. And then uh, just as far as O-line, uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot of guys. If you look at uh, someone like Jackson Carmen from Clemson, he played left tackle there, a really productive, talented player. Uh, uh, Mayfield, I mentioned, a Stone Forsyth from Florida. He played left tackle and uh, so th- there's a lot of options, a lot of names that uh, that that will be there for the for the Jets. Mark, you've been in war rooms a bunch of times. How does it usually work? Because this is one of those things that people would love to sit in on. A lot of football junkies, but in some ways, it just seems like such a stressful environment. I know it's exciting, but at the same time, your heart's got to be racing. You've got to be having your blood pressure go up through the roof, right? Take us through what a normal war room feels like on draft night. Well, it's really a lot of hurry up and wait. You know, <laughs> you have that time, the window of time where you're about to pick. So let's 
Well, I used to just start talking about guys a little bit over an hour before you pick. But the rest of the time when everyone else picking, you're kind of just hanging out. <laughs> you know, you're, you're reading your notes and doing your things. Scouts are doing that. But for the most part, you're, you're waiting and waiting. OK, and then your pick is starting to come up. And what we used to do is just kind of start having a mini draft meeting again as you're approaching. And what I'll say is, OK, here's the group of guys that we have valued here. Our pick is coming up. Let's just start talking over these guys one last time to make sure we're all on the same page and make sure that we're all getting the same input. And so that when we get to this pick, we're going to decide who we're going to take. The first round is real easy. You kind of have that mapped out before, you know, beforehand. But as the draft progresses, there's more and more instability, more and more flux of what happens. So that's why we would sit and talk through, okay, let's go through the area scouts. You talk about this player. Let's go to the position coach, the coordinator. What do you feel? Just really quick, just to get that, that back in your mind to make sure we're all thinking of the same thing. Okay, now we're coming down. We have this guy graded higher than this guy, uh, but uh, do we really need this? Do we need that? And you're just piecing it all together one last time. You know, the owner's there involved. You talk to the trainers one last time to make sure that the medical grade is fine. Even though you've done all this for a month before, you're just making sure you do, you're doing everything the last minute you getting you're getting your uh, your player development guy to make sure there's no off the field issues that we're concerned about in the interviews. Uh, so you're just doing all that over and over again, just to be on the same page, just to make sure you're hopefully making the right pick. How does the evaluation process work leading up to that day? Because you said it's well over a month. It's really, I would imagine, right after the season ends is when this stuff begins. You got free agency and you've got the draft. How do the responsibilities break down and what do you look for specifically in players? Is it, do we need this guy for a system or is it more, okay, this is the guy that has the most talent. We can do this with him. How do you decide which guys to take off your board and rise up your board and rise down your board? How does it all work? Yeah, there's a lot of factors. So your scouts, the process starts when colleges start training camp and our, our area scouts, mm. there's, there's scouts that live throughout all throughout the country and they'll go to their respective colleges in the area. You got a guy in Florida, he goes to SEC schools, let's just say, a guy lives in Ohio, he does uh, the Big Ten. So you cross-check like that and these scouts are at these different colleges every day throughout the fall season, uh, going to games. Uh, they're, once they're at the schools, they watch film, they talk to as many people as possible, meeting coaches, strength coaches, trainers, academic people, uh, GAs. You're just talking to get all the background information, as much background and character and medical information as possible. Uh, so once the season is over, then that's kind of when all-star games start and the, the scouts are doing that. Uh, and then once the coaches kind of get done, our coaches, then you kind of get them involved when free NFL free agency is done. Of course, the combine is part of the process. Uh, and then pro, pro days are part of the process as you're hearing now. Uh, but what happens is when a, when a scout evaluates a player during the year, there's a, there's a database that where we had a grading scale and every player gets a report and every player gets a grade and it goes into the database and you kind of just start formulating your draft board from the, the grades and the averages that your scouts uh, have putting on these players. Then once you start draft meetings, once you get all the information, I mean, you have some draft meetings throughout the year, but you're really not digging deep because you don't have all the information. And then once the draft approaches, then you get all the information and you start really digging deep on breaking down the players and talking about these players as a group, as far as what they do on the field, 
what they do off the field, what they do in the weight room, what they do as far as learning football. Oh, and again, part of the process is bringing those players into your facility to work them over, put your hands on them, see them face to face, you know, guys you're really interested in. Um, so, so you're really grading the talent. You're grading all that. You let the talent dictate uh, where you value them, but then you let the character and the mental aspects of it kind of, or if they have some sort of off field issues, then you kind of let that massage the board a little bit, whether you're going to value a certain player over another player. You talked about the system fit, Scott. Well, what that's when you get the coaches involved to say, all right, a scout may look at a, a player, let's just say a hybrid defensive player and say, wow, I think he can play safety. I think he can play line. We could do all these different things because I see him as this talented player. But then you get in the draft meetings with your coaches and the safety coach is saying, well, I can't use him. And then, well, let's, what about the linebacker? And the linebacker coach is saying, I don't think he's a great fit either for what we do as a linebacker. And then you ask the D coordinator and he's saying, you know what? I don't know if I want to create a role for this player uh, as well. So that's the difference kind of where you have to have what the scouts see as far as the talent matchup with coaches feel like they can fit a guy into a system. And you never want to get a coach, give a coach a player that they do not want because they will not make them succeed. If they, if you give them a guy they want, they're more, more, more likely than not, they'll help them to try to succeed. So just basically matching up all that information throughout the year leading up to the draft week, that's kind of how you piece it all together and set your draft board based off of all those factors. Along the lines of what you just said, we saw what happened with Le'Veon Bell and Adam Gase, how Gase didn't want Bell and basically went out of his Mm -hmm. way to make sure that Bell wasn't going to succeed here with the Jets. So 100%, you absolutely want to avoid a situation like that. But the process you were just talking about led to the Giants getting a lot of really, really good players while you were there. Odell Beckham, one of them, Landon Collins, Jason Pierre-Paul, one guy that you signed as an undrafted free agent is somebody that I should probably yell at you for. It's Victor Cruz. If the Jets just covered him in that game, we wouldn't be talking about the guy probably in the preseason game. <laughs> I feel so bad because I feel like Victor Cruz is probably a nice guy. The nicest guy in the world. Don't, 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 don't take it out of him. Nicest guy. <laughs> Ever since then, though, been a downhill slide for the Jets. They've had one winning season in the last 10 years and zero playoffs. And so Victor Cruz and that catch, like you said, if the Jets would have just covered him on that day, who knows what could have happened. It could have swung the other way, but (laughs) the Giants ended up winning the Super Bowl and the Jets began the long descent down for the next 10 years. But I wanted to ask you about Jason Pierre-Paul and the way that you found Mm -hmm. some of these players, even Victor Cruz, who, as I said, was an undrafted free agent, sort of the way that the Jets discovered Robbie Anderson out of Temple, and he did really well Mm -hmm. as an undrafted free agent. I know with Jason Pierre-Paul, you said that you were watching film of George Selvey, who had had a monster year the year before. I think he had like 16 mm-hmm. sacks, and he was on a lot of people's radar as a potential top 10 pick. The next year, he didn't do anywhere near as well, and then ended up getting drafted really, really late and didn't do anything in the NFL. But when you were watching that tape, you just kept noticing the other guy on the line, Jason Pierre-Paul. So I was curious how many times you've had things like that happen where you're watching tape of one guy and somebody else pops. And also want to know if there were any other fun stories like that of guys that you discovered, whether it was by accident or on purpose while you were looking through film. 
and different guys that you could talk about now or different incidents of scouting players that stand out to you years later as having been some of the more fun discoveries or more interesting discoveries? Yeah. So, yeah, well, we'll we'll just start with JPP. Um, So, you know, the beginning of the year, you kind of, there's scouting services that the one's called Blesto, one's called National that are in the, it's kind of like a co-op where you put one of your scouts into the scouting service and they prepare for the next season uh, draft while you're getting ready for this season. So that being said, with, with uh, South Florida and George Selby, everyone knew about him. He was an All-American, mm-hmm. as you mentioned, two-time All-American, two-time big, like all Big East. Uh, as you said, he had 14 and a half sacks and 31 tackles for loss. You know, that was, I think his sophomore year and his junior year, he might have had, you know, 14. And it was just ridiculous, his stats. And this is when you have to uh, actually evaluate film where uh, versus production versus talent. And uh, Selby kind of was that kind of guy where – Hit tons and tons of production, but just the talent wasn't there. And you have to see how production uh, is created. But so you were going into South Florida to see George Self. That was why you were going because of the stats and because they kind of had him graded high as far as blessed though. So you were going in there to them. Jason Pierre-Paul was an unknown. He had went to two different junior colleges. Uh, so he had, and he had just gotten to South Florida like a week or two before the season started. So you're you're in I'm in there after a few games at South Florida and I'm, I'm actually sitting in the defensive line room uh, they just happen to you know when you go to a school they put you in different rooms to watch film and there's a I'm watching tape and I'm George Selby's 95 but this and he's kind of not really doing anything and then this 90 just kind of just keeps like whoa what what is going on with this guy <laughs> you know you just see this long guy with explosive and knocking people around and like and I and I kept checking my notes, like, do I have the right number? Is it George? <laughs> I thought George Selby was 95, not 90. And they actually had a, a board up kind of to my left on there where they had each of the defensive linemen's name and they had their production and you know, sacks, pressures, all this kind of stuff. Uh, and I saw his name, Jason Pierre-Paul, and uh, then started asking, you know, he could have stayed another year. He came out early. He was, that was the only year he played. But I had gotten back to the office and told uh, Jerry Reese, I'm like, you know, wait till you see this guy down in South Florida. This guy's unbelievable. And they happened to be playing Rutgers later on in the year at Rutgers. So it was, I believe it was a Thursday night game. So we went down there to see him. And, of course, he saw him. He fell in love with him right away. Just You couldn't help to. Uh, but he just had such a, 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 a rare path to get where he got. And he hadn't played a lot in the, the junior colleges. But when you just looked at his talent and you – did the background and the research on his passion for us. It was, you know, we, we have to get this guy and he was going to be a, he was going to be a star and man, I couldn't be more proud of what he's done and just him winning another Super Bowl and coming back from everything he's come back from off the field. Um, just one of my just favorite guys that, that I've, I've ever scouted or been around. Um, you know, the Victor Cruz situation was totally different where, uh, he was a UMass small school guy and you were actually going to UMass too, to watch another receiver. They had another guy that was kind of rated to be drafted another receiver. And, uh, but Victor was on the list, but he was just kind of a nondescript small school player. And we have a pro day every year. So you hear about the combine, you hear about pro days that are at schools, but the pro you, we have a local pro day. So the, the NFL allows uh, the New York area, we can bring in, 
any player who's from this area or played at any of these colleges in, in the area to come to our facility. And we have a combine for all those guys. And we've discovered guys through this, or you start recruiting them to sign after the draft. And Victor was one of those guys. He was at the pro day. He showed a little bit of something, but nothing where you say the guy's going to be a pro bowl player, but he showed a little bit of something to know, Hey, we want to, we want to make sure we get him into our training camp. Uh, you know, once the, draft is over we want to sign Victor Cruz so he's at training camp and he he you know, this guy's got a little bit of quickness and then he drop a ball and he run a great route and he drop another ball and like we used to kind of call him 50 50 just because he catch one drop one catch one drop one and then the Jets game <laughs> and then he got into the that prime time I think it was a Monday night game against the Jets Giants Jets big deal Victor Cruz gets in the game and he gets well I think he had 160 and three touchdowns he's making one hand catches and he's running by everybody. And that's kind of where this, this, the star of Victor Cruz was born, where you really up to that point, you saw a little bit of flashes, but nothing to the extent where you, you thought he would explode like that. You know, he got hurt that year. People forget that first year uh, he actually got hurt and he didn't play. Then the, the second season is when he really exploded. And the, the, the crazy thing was our very first game was down in Washington our first third down, a big third down, and we threw to Victor. He was wide open. He got and he dropped that ball. Uh, but then two weeks later, uh, we had the Philly game, where he caught the. We played down in Philly, and he caught the little out route, and he went seventy down the field. And that's when he first did the salsa dance down in Philly at Lincoln Financial Field. And then the star of Victor Cruz was born. Mark, I think you just gave me PTSD reliving that. <laughs> Sorry about <laughs> that. <laughs> I love stories like that, though. Obviously, I've never been in a front office, but accidentally discovering somebody is fun. I remember in 1997, I went up to West Point to watch Army play Marshall, and I wasn't thinking anything of it. And I saw this receiver. I was like, who is this guy? 6'5", 220. Nobody could cover him. Mm-hmm. Man amongst boys out there. And of course, that was Randy Moss. And then the following years when he got all the Heisman hype and ended up going in the NFL yeah. draft and all that. Another kind of an opposite story. Mm-hmm. And it's about a former Jet. This, was, this should make you feel good. So about <laughs> the Brickishaw Ferguson. So... With the opening season, the year he was a uh, uh, he was a freshman, I believe, and we were going. I was going to UVA to, to scout some other players. But you go. What happens is you go to a scout a game. You're down on the field pregame, uh, watching you know warmups and everything. And I believe they were playing Colorado State, who kind of was ranked at the time, and they were they were playing at at UVA uh, in Charlottesville. And I'm down on the field, and the starting lineup is practice. You know, they warm up before the game and all that. And there's this guy, this guy that looks like he's about 200 pounds that is with the starting (laughs) offensive line. You know, he's all arms and legs and looks like he should be on the basketball team. And I was with a a scout of mine uh, at the time. His name name is Jim Monas. He worked with the Saints after the fact. But I'm like, look at this guy about the guy. This guy cannot be going out here to start for UVA right now. And we looked him up, and sure enough, the British Charles Ferguson, where he was from, and he was yeah, – I'll give him 200 pounds. He probably was 240 or something. But it was just unbelievable to see. It was like, okay, this guy will never like, – and then, of course, three years later, he's the British Charles Ferguson of first-round pick and the best tackle in the draft. So that one really kind of – usually you see guys that are men amongst boys when they get their big-time recruits, and you're like, wow, look at him. Uh, but the British Charles was the exact opposite where I saw him just as a young player and he did not look like he should be out on that field at all just because he was so skinny. 
it's amazing how these things develop sometimes and how players can really find a way to build themselves up. I've talked about this with Zach Wilson. I mean, he was 150 pounds when he was a junior in high school, just weighed in at his pro day at 215 pounds. So you just mm-hmm. never know with these guys. Sometimes they're late bloomers in terms of just physical stature, and that clearly is what happened with Shaw Ferguson. Mark Ross, analyst mm-hmm. over at the NFL Network, former longtime scout, and of course, he was the VP of player evaluation with the New York Giants. Thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. I hope you'll come back after the draft so we can talk about what the Jets actually did and break it down. For those that want to watch you on NFL Network, I know you're going to be involved in their coverage starting on April 29th and then going throughout the next three days in prime time where you cover round one on the first day, rounds two and three the second day, and then rounds four through seven on the third day. But how can they find you on social media? How can they check out what you're doing right now? Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, at Mark Ross with a C on Twitter. I'm not on a whole lot on anything else. I kind of stick to that. I'm an old school guy, Scott. I, gotta, I need a PR person to help me out. So it's, uh, yeah, just at Mark Ross. But then all week I'll be on the draft coverage and uh, draft all the draft days and nights as well. Make sure you check out Mark and the coverage that NFL Network is going to be providing throughout the draft. I also have to say, Mark, as much as I wanted you to be hired in 2013, and as much as somebody must hire you, I don't know why you're not a general manager right now. You absolutely need to be in somebody's front office. If you want to be, I don't know. Maybe you prefer being <laughs> yeah. on TV at this point. I like this. Just telling everybody what to do. No, no <laughs> consequences or repercussions. To just go. <laughs> what I was going to say yeah, is, well, as much well, as I'd love to see you in the Jets' front office, I kind of hope that Joe Douglas gets this right on draft night and that they don't need to hire you because if they mm-hmm. do need to hire you, that means things went very, very wrong, especially at the quarterback. <laughs> yeah, so let's hope that doesn't happen. But make sure you're checking out everything Mark is doing right now. Check out everything we're doing at playlikeajet.com and on our Play Like a Jet YouTube channel. Luke Grant's got a great breakdown right now up of Kendrick Green, the interior offensive lineman from Illinois. He can play guard, he can play center. Check out why Luke likes him so much, thinks he'd be a great fit in this zone blocking system. Kayla Pace has her commentary up right now, Pace's playbook. You can check that out. And if you haven't given us a five star review on iTunes yet, if you could go ahead and do that for us, really appreciate it. Easy way to help out the show if you like what we're doing. Doesn't take you much time, doesn't cost you any money, but it goes a long way to help us out. So if you do that for us, we'd be quite grateful. And for the latest and greatest in New York Jets podcasts and content, you know where to go. That's Play Like a Jet Digital and PlayLikeAJet.com. <laughs>